That was incredible. My name's Richard. Hello, everybody. It's good to be with you. I'm down from uh, Seattle, and I'll be here this week, so it's a joy to be together. I'm just going to move this because I move around, and I don't want to knock anything over. Uh, and if we should put that first slide up, I just want to introduce myself because I know the vast majority of you don't know who I am. You can know me with these numbers, 4321, all right? So I'm up in Seattle. I have four grandkids, four granddaughters, actually, age six, three, three, and six months. I have three kids, each married, so six kids now, but three children, all who live within like 100 miles of where I live. I live east of Seattle, 60 miles, right at the ski hill called Snoqualmie Pass. And because of that, the number two, you remember me as this. We have two seasons, winter and almost winter. That's really all we have. <laughs> so it's really fun to be here and get some vitamin D this week. I love that. And we have one dog. His name is Silver Fur. He's a mini husky. And uh, if you come the rest of the week, uh, most of my sermon illustrations will be drawn from him. My kids are grown, and I was, li I was really worried, like, once the kids leave home, who am I going to tell stories about? But now I have a dog, problem solved, right? So uh, Silver Fur nails it for me. Hey, uh, it is a real joy to be here. I grew up in Fresno, uh, went to, yeah, Fresno, McLean High School. Um, and then when I got married, my honeymoon was right here at Hume Lake in a little, in a little cabin. So that was super fun for my wife and I who have subsequently moved to the, the Pacific Northwest where where we love it, but it's good to be back, so it feels like a home to me. I want to just uh, share with you that about three weeks ago, I listened to a podcast uh, by Russell Moore. He is the previous president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he now works for Christianity Today. And the title of the podcast is why I listened. I'm not a regular podcast guy, but I saw this on my YouTube feed, and the title of the podcast was How Did the Church Lose Its Mind? And I was curious because I think it has, and I wanted to know why. David Brooks was the guest. David Brooks is self-described as the token conservative for the New York Times. And so uh, uh, the question that Russell Moore asked of David Brooks was this. He said, hey, are things really worse now than they were 50 years ago? Or is it just that now with our 24-7 news cycle and constant news feed and social media, we're inundated with all the bad news, so things feel worse, even though they're not actually worse. Does that make sense as a question? Are things really worse, or do things just feel worse, because we know too much? Here's David Brooks. I love this. Oh, no, it's worse. That's what he said. And then he, he fires off statistics. The number of people who have no close friends, by self-definition, has quadrupled in one generation. The number of people who commit suicide annually has risen by a third since the year 2000. The number of people suffering from depression is up 57%. 54% of Americans say they know no one well and no one knows me well. And then all these next things that I'm about to name for you have realized in the last decade exponential growth in the degree of their presence in our culture. Opioid addiction, addiction, political polarization, record rise in hate crimes, traffic fatalities, road rages, and as we know, shootings. And that was three weeks ago, before 10 dead in Buffalo, 19 in Uvalde, Texas, and one in Tulsa, because the patient didn't like how the doctor performed the surgery. And then Brooks goes on, this is what he says. He says, hey, you can assess all this as a sociological problem. We're more lonely than ever. We're more isolated. We are. You can assess it as a technological problem. 
If you've uh, seen the Netflix thing called The Social Dilemma, you know a little bit of what, about what I'm speaking of with, uh, with the, the algorithms that are designed to put into your newsfeed of your social media that which angers you, that, and it's a problem. He says, yeah, it could be uh, uh, described as an economic problem because of the growing gap between the rich and the poor. But uh, this is what Brooks says. He says, but foundationally, behind all that, all that's still upstream, upstream, upstream. Like, go all the way to the top of the stream. Go to the well and go further upstream, further. What's the source of all the problems? Here's what Brooks says. We collectively in our culture are facing a crisis of formation. And, and here's what he means by that. He says, you know, back in the day when children went to school, they learned, as we heard this morning, this spectacular video, there's truth. And you have to align your life according to truth. We don't live in that culture anymore. And because we don't live in that culture, we have no basis for formation. And the definition of formation is this, to be formed in order to fulfill a purpose. And you and I, when we say yes to Christ, we enter, whether we know it or not, we enter a journey, lifelong, of ongoing formation so that we can look more and more and more and more like Jesus. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he's writing the Galatians, and the, are the Galatians saved? Yes. Do they know God? Yes. Are they living the life for which they're intended? No. And he says, listen, here's why I'm writing. I'm like a mother in the midst of childbirth, so great is my pain that, and then he finishes the sentence. So great is my pain that that, that thing, this blank, happens to you. I want this one thing to happen to you. What is it? Well, you know, get your ticket stamp so you know you're going to heaven. No, that's not it. Um, fulfill your doctrinal statement so that you can defend the resurrection of Jesus and the inerrancy of Scripture. No, that's not it either. Uh, how about upward mobility? Nope. What's the one thing that Paul wants for the Galatians? This is what he says. He says that Christ be formed in you. In other words, the one thing, if I could only wish one thing for all of us in the room, it's this, that we would each become in greater measure unique expressions of the resurrected Jesus so that in our lives we see healing and hope and joy, and crossing social divides, and beauty, and unconditional love, and connection, and community, and justice, and confidence, and humility, and service, because that's who Jesus is. And our calling is to display the life of Christ. 1 Peter 2.12 says it this way, people who don't believe are living all around you, and they may say when they look at you that you're doing wrong. So live such good lives that they'll see the good you do and give glory to God on the day he comes. That's 1 Peter 2.12 in, are you ready for this? The easily readable version, the ERV. Who even knew there was such a thing? <laughs> but there is. And I chose that specifically for this reason. I'm going to say it again. People who don't believe are living all around you. Uh, I became a pastor in... 1995 in Seattle, and my wife and I moved from a tiny little town where the whole phone book was a sheet of paper into the city, three miles from the University of Washington, four miles from downtown, and uh, it, we kind of didn't want to be there, but we knew God had called us. I'll just say it that way. So picture this. It's early in our time there. We've purchased a house. 
uh, we're friends now with a neighbor who's right across the street. And my neighbor, this is Seattle, right? Seattle's kind of crazy, pagan, whatever. You name it, you just, yeah, whatever you think of us, we're, we're more than that, right? <laughs> so, so that's Seattle. And my neighbors are just typical, they're just typical, typical Seattle people. I mean, uh, quasi-Buddhists, quasi-New Age, organic gardening, barefoot, organic coffee on the porch with Seattle Times every Sunday morning, one nothing to do with Jesus' neighbors. That's our, those are our neighbors, right? And uh, so I'm friends with David, you know, and he's made it very clear early on, I don't want nothing to do with your Jesus. You know, I believe in universal, whatever, right? So one Sunday, I'm... Uh, Got the minivan, we got three kids, and I'm trying to get everybody to go to church a mile away because I have to be there at 8.30 to lead the meeting, right? And it's 8.20, and my kids are not in the car. And it's super annoying to me. And so I'm yelling from the van to the open front door in hopes that my children will hear and be motivated to get all their butts and get into the van so we can go to church and I can be a Christian, right? <laughs> so uh, I'm like this, get in the car! I just, it's 8.23, I'm the leader. They pay me to run these meetings. You guys are making me late. Get out of there now! And I'm just mad, right? And I look in the rearview mirror and there's David, the pagan, right? <laughs> Drinking his coffee, Reading the Seattle Times in his bathrobe. He just waves. We make eye contact in the mirror. The kids get in the car. They're crying. They're arguing. I'm not going to church. I'm going to stay home. You're going to church. I'm the leader. <laughs> Shut up. Right? All that stuff. It's ridiculous. And then we start driving away. I roll down the window to say hi to David. He's like this. Give him hell, Richard. You're fired up this morning. Give him hell. Right? <laughs> And then, and, then I, and then I drive away, and I was like this, you know what? My testimony is shot. 1 Peter 2.12, people who don't believe are living all around you. Yeah, they are. So, this week, we're going to spend some time talking about formation in the evenings for adults and staff and whoever wants to be there. And what we're going to do, if we go to the next slide is I'll show you over the, over the time of a sabbatical that I just had, I spent a great deal of time walking through the snowy, the snowy forest that is our house, thinking about if I were to take a group of people from the beginning and shape them to become deeply devoted followers of Christ who are displaying the life of Christ, how would I do that? And I decided that there are six fundamental questions that everyone in the world is asking. The questions are... <laughs> Why am I here? How does my creator view me? How am I called specifically to bless the world? How do I deal with my brokenness and failure? What habits help me on a journey toward wholeness? And what does a whole person look like? And, and so we're going to deal with each of those questions over the course of this week if you join me in the evenings. But this morning, we're going to deal with the first one. Uh, why am I here? You're born. And now, for many of you in the room, you've already come to Christ. So if the goal was heaven... You could have just been beamed up immediately once you come to Christ. But that's not the goal. 
God has given you a specific purpose, and to look at that purpose this morning, we're going to go to Genesis. And in Genesis 12, we're going to look at Abraham, and God just has a few words to Abraham, and I just have a few words for, uh, for you. So we'll look at these together, but in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, this is what we read. God spoke to Abram, and he said, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you, make your name great, you'll be a blessing, I'll bless those who bless you, the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What I want you to see in our time together this morning is that the promises given here to Abraham define why you are on this planet. The promises given to Abraham define why you're on the planet. Why? Because the promises given to Abraham here are promises given to you. And why do I say that? Here's why. You know why. Sing it with me. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. That's all we need to hear right there. I am one of them, and so are you. I'm a, I'm a what? I'm a child of Abraham. Therefore, the promises given to Abraham apply to me. Uh, uh, now, it's not just the song that reminds me of that. It's also Romans 4. You can go there sometime, and you see. The promises apply to, to me. We're going to Abraham. And the, every promise is interpreted in the New Testament. So we're going to look at these three things that God promised to Abraham. He promised Abraham fruit, land, and that Abraham would be a blessing. We're promised <clears throat> fruit, rest, and that we will be a blessing. So let's look at those three things. First of all, just like Abraham... I'm called to bear fruit. God said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, to your father's house. I'll make you a great nation. You'll be the father of nations. Well, I can't be a father of nations until I'm first what? A father. And when Abraham received this promise, he was literally childless and had been waiting since the time he was married over 40 years earlier for children to exist in his household. He was by now 75 uh, his wife was 65, the fruit that would ultimately come would be miraculous, even as the fruit that comes through us will be miraculous. So all that we learn from Abraham about bearing fruit applies in our own lives. How did Abraham ultimately bear fruit? Well, we know that Abraham knew he was made to be fruitful, even as you and I know that we're made to be fruitful, we also know that Abraham tried to produce fruit in the strength of his own frail humanity, even as you and I try to produce fruit in the strength of our own frail humanity. We're like, okay, God's called me to change the world, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to work hard, and with enough self-discipline, and enough connections, and enough social influence, and if I get my TikTok right, and if there's a smoke machine, and great music, man, we're going to kill it. Like, we're on it, right? Just tell me what to do, God. I've got this. Can I just say to you, no, you don't. <laughs> None of us do. What did Jesus say? When he told us to bear fruit, he said it this way in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Really? I do a lot of things apart from him. What do I do? I get up, I brush my teeth. I'm thirsty. I drink. Sometimes I preach. Apart from him. What does it mean, apart from me, you can do nothing? Apart from the generating work of Christ in me, I can never bear the fruit that I'm called to bear. I, can, I just can't do it, right? And so I need a life that I don't have 
living in me to fulfill a purpose that I could never fulfill apart from the reality of the indwelling resurrected Jesus. And so Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. And it's a law. Like, he doesn't say to me, go bear fruit. He says, abide and you will bear fruit. In other words, if you abide, you'll bear fruit. It's like the law of gravity. If I, if I let go, it falls. If I let go, it falls. If I abide, fruit happens. So I have to learn to abide. And when I abide, what begins to happen is in increasing measure in my life, we begin to see more of what's called the fruit of the Spirit. That list is given to us of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 2, and it's things like this, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and long-suffering. In other words, people who are abiding in Christ almost without trying begin to look more and more and more like Jesus in their character. Does this make sense? So that we all know it. You've been with people, and you just know there's something different about them. And what's different about them when you're with them, when they are kind of manifesting that, 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 that joy and that, and that peace and that patience and that love, and they're actually making eye contact, and they're listening, and they care about you, bam, that's it. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It looks very different than yelling at your kids from a van window. Abiding, though, makes it happen. And, not, and fruit is not just the fruit of a changed character, but it ultimately becomes also the fruit of influence. The fruit of influence. So, you know, I'll fast forward in the story. I stayed friends with my neighbor. Good, we became good friends, actually. Did a lot together, chatted a lot, drank a lot of good coffee together. Their kids, our kids, good friends. The days that it would snow in Seattle, we'd go to the park, we'd sled together. We were, we were he, and he knew me. He knew my beliefs. He knew my trials, he knew my frustrations, but he also knew my love for Christ. He knew it. He knew it. Well, fast forward a little bit. We're talking now about the fruit of influence. Uh, and about, I want to say five years ago, I'm preaching on a Sunday. And our sanctuary is about this big, I would say. And someone from the very back made her way to the front. She was a college student or a high school student, 18 years old. She made her way to the front. And she had a letter, and she's kind of waiting, and I'm talking to people, and she comes, she hands me this letter. She said, Richard, I just want to give you this. Uh, this is my last Sunday. I'm moving to a different place to go to college, and I wanted you to know that I became a Christian uh, sitting in that back row, and I've been attending here for about 18 months, and I never wanted to bother you or bother anybody. I just come. I bring a friend who's schizophrenic. She cuts herself. She's tried to commit suicide three times. She said that this, this space, this building, is the only place she finds peace. So she'll call me out. She said, I don't want to miss, but we got to go to church. we got to go to church. And she said, Richard, we'd come, we'd sit, we'd laugh, because you're funny. Your jokes are stupid, but, we're, but they're funny. <laughs> we'd cry. We'd pray. We'd read the text. We'd call out to God, and God met me in Christ. Man, it blew me away. And here's why. I said to her, 
How would you ever come through the doors even? Like, people in Seattle don't just wake up one morning and go, I think I'll go to church. That just doesn't happen. She said, oh, well, my uncle. I, I was over at my uncle's house, and he knew I was struggling. He knew I'd been seeing a therapist and had big things going on in my life, and I was in a very dark place. And I was over there, and, and she, she said, I said to my uncle, if there's a God, I wish he'd show up. And my uncle said, oh, you're looking for God. Well, you need to go to Richard's church. You'll find God there. I said, who's your uncle? David, your neighbor. David? <laughs> my organic coffee quasi-Buddhist new age neighbor sent you to church. Yeah, Richard. He doesn't believe in God yet, but he believes in you. <laughs> Listen, can I just remind you guys? There's a quote up here. Can we go back to the quote? It's been said that no one ever became a Christian because they lost an argument. You know, just sit with that for a minute. I'm going to prove to you the resurrection. I'm going to prove to you the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm going to prove to you the validity of the text. Not unimportant, hear me. But in the end, I suspect far more people than we imagine have become converts to Christianity for the simple reason they were charmed by the beauty of Christ. We go back to the outline now. I love that phrase, charmed by the beauty of Christ. What happened in my little world was David got to know, he got to know me. He got, he got to know my story. He got to know that when my world imploded and my dad had died and I'd gone to Cal Poly to study architecture and I was just going to build buildings and leave a name for myself and I was taking a vacation from God, he knew that the, the thing that brought me back to reality, that brought me out of anxiety and depression and health issues was the challenge of a preacher at a camp just like this who quoted Jeremiah 9, which says, don't let the rich man boast of his wisdom or the mighty man boast of his might or the strong man boast of his strength. Uh, but if anyone will boast of him, boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I'm the Lord. And then the guy speaking pointed at me and he said, there's some in the room, it was a college retreat, there's some in the room who are killing it with your grades, you're outwardly successful, you're doing your thing, but you're lonely, you're anxious, you don't have a clue what to do with your life, get it together and make knowing God the goal of your life. Like if I was the only person in the room, that's all I needed to hear. I went out in the snow, Camp Sugar Pine, not far from here, got on my knees, I said, God, I don't know what it means, but I want to know you. And that changed the course of my major, that moved me to a new state, that changed the course of my life. I just want to tell you, it's so important, friends, that we, that we understand that when we share our own story of transformation in relationship with people, it's the beauty of Christ in you that will win the argument. Not the argument, the beauty. And so the first, fruit, the, the, the first promise, fruit. The second promise given to Abraham is land, but if you go into the New Testament, that's defined for us as rest. Because in Hebrews 3, God is speaking now of the nation of Israel and their failure to enter the land. And he says, brothers, don't harden your heart the way they did in Israel in the day when I led them out from slavery. They're always going astray in their hearts. And I said, in my anger, says God, 
they will never enter my rest. My, they won't enter the rest. In other words, God has promised for us a rest. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? And literally, the word rest here is, I'll make your burden cease. I'll give you relief. And then this is what he says. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For us to enter into a place of rest whereby our life is utterly, completely surrendered to Christ, the question on the table is this, how do we do that? For us to do that, the, here's the answer. The word yoke in Matthew 11 is this word. If you have a, who, who are horse people in the room? Any horse people? A couple of you. So if you're a horse person, you know this. If there's a wild horse, uh, you, you yoke the wild horse with the tame horse, right? And then what, is, what happens? Then the, the, the wild horse takes its cues from the tame horse. If you know first aid, or like I, I know wilderness first aid, what happens in wilderness first aid is we're taught that we get on a scene, people are going to be super panicked, super stressed, super upset, and so you go in and watch this. It's like magic. If I'm calm, the people in, at the, on the scene will take their cue from my calmness. If I'm upset, they're upset. But if I'm calm and they're upset, they become calm. So I remember going to a, a, a wilderness first aid situation where a young girl had been swept away in an avalanche and was killed. And here's her boyfriend. The avalanche took all of this and left him. And we get there, and she's dead. They don't find her for two days. And now we have to hike out, and he has to call her parents and let them know that their daughter has died. And so I go onto the scene, and I, I say, uh, Jason, I'm trained in first aid, and I'm here to help you, and I'm a chaplain. And I know this must be hard. You know what happens? Immediately, he hugs me. He starts to weep. He's already thrown up. And then I just watch it. His breathing begins to match my breathing. And as I am calm, he calms down. And I said, now we're going to walk out together. And then I'm going I'm to go back to Seattle with you. And I'll be there with you when we call the parents. He took his cues from me. Here's what Jesus is saying. Anyone in the room weary? Burnt out? Anxious? Afraid? Have body image issues? Have financial hardships? Dealing with uh, the implosion of a marriage? Dealing with oncology reports? Anybody in the room, like, not at rest? Hello, all. Here's what Jesus says. Take your cue from me. Take your cue from me. Yoke yourself to me. Make my presence in your life your home screen. Jeremiah 9. Make knowing God the thing, the thing that defines you. Not your fruitfulness, not your influence, not your income, not your vocation. Bedrock, foundational is this. Jesus is my home screen, my best friend, always with me. And if that's the case, here's the promise. You will find rest for your souls.
We need rest. This is one of my favorite passages because uh, right about the year 2003, we do refugee resettlement in our church, and a church member called me and said, hey, Richard, I've been assigned a refugee, and I really think you want to meet him. Well, we're a church of 3,500, and I was like, you know. I, I said, you know, that's interesting, but I'm pretty busy. He says, no, this guy uh, was the imam, the, the Muslim cleric of Saddam Hussein's church in Iraq. You want to meet him? I said, yeah, I'd like to meet him. That sounds pretty interesting. So we met for Mexican food, and this guy had a translator, and we had an amazing conversation, and then I drove back to the church, and then my buddy calls me and says, Richard, you left your, man, you left your credit card at the restaurant. Come on over to church, I'll pick it up. We come over, and here's the imam. He says to me through translation, he says, is this your holy building? I said, yeah, this is where we meet for worship. He says, I want to go in and see it. I go, okay, come on in. So we go in. He looks around. It's very similar to this. We all have, there's pew Bibles. He picks, up, he picks up a Bible. He says, is this your holy book? I said, this is my holy book. Yeah, this is what we, I teach from this every Sunday. He says, you're teaching this Sunday? Yes. He says, what, what text will you teach from? I, to, I went, I took him to Matthew 11. I said, Jesus says, Jesus, and I read it to him. Jesus says, if you're weary, and heavy laden, come to me, I'll give you rest. He had just told me over lunch that he was tortured by both U.S. intelligence officials and Saddam Hussein's officials because he refused to get involved politically in the war in Iraq. He'd been tortured by both, by, by, by both enemies. He'd been tortured. He walked with a cane. When I read that text, he, a very strong man, got tears in his eyes. He said, I could use some rest right now. He said... Would it be heresy if I came this Sunday? I said, it wouldn't be heresy at all. It would be delight. And he came and he sat in a soundproof room with a translator and listened and heard the invitation to know Jesus. I'd love to say he renounced Islam in the moment and changed forever. But I learned long ago, I don't save anybody Jesus saves. I just sow seeds of hope. Sow seeds. And what a privilege to sow seeds of hope with a man uh, who learned that if he yokes himself with Jesus, he will, he will find rest. And then there's one more. The promise that we will be a blessing to others. In Genesis 12, it says, I'll make you a blessing, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Of course, that's the seed that ultimately comes, uh, the person of Jesus but let's think about this in just a little bit of a different way for just a moment, okay? God is calling us to actively bless and serve our hurting and broken world. When I, uh, uh, when I interviewed to become pastor of Bethany Community Church in Seattle, one of the questions was, what's your vision for the, the church? I said, I don't really have a vision. I was trying to not get the job, actually, just so you know. So that, that was my answer. They said, can you kind of unpack that? I said, well, I'm not the head of the church. Jesus is. And so there's a lot of gifts represented in, in the community that is Bethany. 
And what we want to do is we want to find people's calling and passion for ministry. And if there's a spark there, we want to pour gas on the spark and add fuel to the fire so that everyone can do what they're called to do. And I predict that if that becomes our vision collectively to equip the saints to do whatever it is that they're called to do, we'll end up doing lots of different things. And indeed, we did end up doing lots of different things. Refugee resettlement, mothers of preschoolers, um, uh, working with people who have cancer, working with people who are dying of AIDS, street ministry, community meal, breakfast um, um, three times a week for people living on the streets, Sh shelter, 12 women in the basement of our church, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, all this stuff. All we're trying to do is bless the city of Seattle in Jesus' name. That's all we're trying to do. Well, we kept growing and growing. Then we had to build a building. So uh, what happened was we needed to buy an alley from the city of Seattle in order to build a building. And to get this, to get this alley bought, we, there were 18 neighbors of the church, and we needed 12 of them to sign a thing saying, we think this church is a good idea. So here's, here's what happens. Eight, we need 18. One, two, three, four, five, six, done. Seven, a little convincing, done. Eight, a lot of convincing, done. Nine and 10, really difficult. I'm ashamed to say it, we bribed we bribed you guys, right? Like we went to you, will you sign? You're like, no, I hate churches. I go, well, here's the thing. In the back of your house, there's an alley, and that alley, is, it floods, and we can say that it's destroying your garden every year. Can we put drainage in the alley to divert the water away from your garden? Oh, I'd love that. Sign here. <laughs> Done. Ten. Eleven, crime in your backyard, buddy. Would you like a streetlight? I'd love one. Done. Sign. Eleven. All we need is one more. Twelve. And twelve is the devil incarnate, I'm telling you. <laughs> like, we could not get this guy to sign. We couldn't get him to sign. So, there's a deadline. It's a Friday. It's 5 p.m. We've talked to everybody Again and again and again, we've stopped talking to him because he was actively protesting. He, he was like marching with signs. Don't let the church build a church, you know. And we'd, we'd given up. We were like, okay, we, we, got, we thought God was in this. Maybe not. We've tried everything, including bribery. It's Friday morning. Let's have a staff prayer meeting. God, it will take a miracle. We're out of resources, which is where we should have been a long time ago anyway. But now that we're broke, God, we're depending on you. Do a miracle. At 2 o'clock, he comes in. This guy, with the sign. I want to sign your petition. And I was like this. No, you don't. I know you. He said, I'm signed. I want to sign. I go, Why? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> you don't even have to think about it. And he said, then he said two things. He said, number one, Richard, if there's a God, I don't want him mad at me. He used a different word than mad, but that's what he said. If there's a God, I don't want him mad at me. So I'm taking a chance here. <laughs> I'm going to sign. But he said, number two, he says, as much as I don't like you guys, I know this much. 
The city's better because you're here. I see it. I see the women who come and sleep in the shelter. I see the people coming and they get a free breakfast three, three mornings a week. I see what you're doing with refugee resettlement. And he says, uh, I'm just afraid God's going to be really mad at me if I don't help in my own little tiny way. And then he says it this way, will you please let me sign so I can get out of here? <laughs> Signed. Fast forward, 18 months, building's built, everything's done. And then we're going to have a little open house for all the neighbors. And so Ron is his name. He comes to my office. He says, hey, Richard, I got your invitation to the open house. He says, I just want you to know I'm going to be there. I said, that's super, man. I'm glad you're there. And you know, it's just an open house. There's cookies, evangelical punches in the back. You know, it's all good. It's, it's all, it's what it is. It's just a, it's a typical kind of open house Christian thing, right? Ron's there. He hangs around the very end. And he says, hey, what does a guy have to do to come to one of these Sunday meetings? He says, is, is there like a membership fee up front or something? I go, no. He says, how much does it cost? I said, it doesn't cost anything. You can come anytime. Anytime. It's wide open, man. The doors are just open. Just come in. No ticket, no ticket. Don't, nope. He'd never been to church in his life, ever. Never. A lot of people have come to Christ at Bethany who've never been to church before. This is one, of, one story of dozens like this. But anyway, this guy. So he, so he shows up the next Sunday. The back row of the balcony. Again, serves over. Comes down the front. He's just sobbing. God's done a work on his heart. And this is what he says to me. He says, Richard, I was wrong about everything. It's wrong about you. It's wrong about church. Wrong about God. Wrong about faith. I was wrong. He said, I want to know Jesus. Can I? He said, yeah, man. Sign here. <laughs> and then we prayed and he received Christ. Why? Because we're brilliant? No. Here's the deal, you guys. What God is trying to say to Abraham is, look, Abraham, I'm setting you out on a lifelong adventure. And along the way, you're going to be transformed, but I'm also going to transform you and use you in profound ways. So I'm going to transform you and I'm going to use you. Will you say yes over and over and over again? Because if you do, I promise you this, Life in Christ will become a great adventure. And for all you who are on staff this summer, I'll just say it to you this way. You are about to embark on a great adventure, and God will use you to bless others, but God will change you. That's the adventure that is following Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've called us to fruit and rest and blessing. May you be our home screen. May we be filled with your life. May we fixate on you saying yes to you over and over again that we might enjoy the adventure that is the Christian life. And we'll thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks very much, y'all.